So you're making a value judgment. Do I want to get up and go to work or do I want to call into those are value judgments. You always constantly saying I am making a value judgment on this idea or this decision in my life. And almost always 100% of the time, subconsciously, your decision is based on your past experience of the fruit that that decision made. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Salty Pastor Podcast, a podcast for people who want more, need more when it comes <laughs> to their faith. The Salty Pastor is, is designed so that you can go deeper and explore the point and purpose of your faith. And that is why we do what we do. I mean, we want to encourage you, we want to inspire you, but most importantly, it, we want to present timeless truths yes. of the Bible in a way where you can think about them yep. critically. Mm-hmm. And decide for yourself. My name decide is Jesse Mayer, and we can't do the Salty Pastor podcast without the other voice in the room, <laughs> Dr. Douglas Peak. Yes, decide for yourself, decide for yourself. The best thing you can do is make decisions, and I think that's really important. So many people don't make decisions. I think mm. that's one of the downsides of affluence is... Uh, it allows you to just, in our society coast. today, you can coast. Yeah, you can coast and not do anything. And I'm like, oh, what a miserable life that would be. Make decisions, make decisions, make decisions. Even if it's on Netflix, when you see a movie, you just, know, give yourself, I will decide within 10 seconds. And then if you don't, turn it off and go do something else. I heard they were making, at one point, there was the idea of a Netflix roulette button where you could just hit a button and it would just play something play for something you. For but you. I think they've gotten such a wide variety of... Um, some appropriate, some very inappropriate movies yeah. that that might be a little more dangerous than they had anticipated. Yeah, but not good. Back to what we're <laughs> okay. actually talking about. We're in a yeah. series titled Your Life Matters. Yes. Um, we're talking about where does the value in your life come, come from, from and who gives you that value. Mm-hmm. Um, the world, the culture wants to tell you that, you know, your job, your employer, the mm-hmm. politicians, the or yourself, yourself are the things that give you value. And really, when we look into the Bible and we see how much the world's struggling with that ideology and Mm -hmm. how it's not working, then we should maybe be looking somewhere else. And the Bible lays it out very clearly. So we're in the middle of talking about that. Yes, we are. And everyone's searching for their place in this world. I mean, it doesn't matter what your IQ is. Some people have real high IQs and they contemplate the mysteries of the universe all Mm. the time. And there's people who are into philosophy and then there's artistic people who are trying to find a creative expression that moves the soul. And then you have blue collar guys that get up and go to work and do their thing. But, but every single one of them, regardless of where you're at on that scale, on that scale is thinking about where is my place in the world? Because it's a driven by your soul. You know, it's Mm. driven deep within you. And so when you're trying to find your place in this world, you have to realize that I am a sovereign individual that has freedom of choice. Consequently, my choices matter. They really make a difference in the kind of life that I experience. And the best way to make good choices is to evaluate the fruit of the choices that you made in the past. And so this is what we were talking about over on Tuesday as we're doing the Bible study, and that is fruit bearing in the Bible is the way in which we can evaluate our own selves Mm. and how we're doing. And instead of like having somebody, a professor give you a grade, because a grade at school is not necessarily uh, beneficial fruit that you're uh, exhibiting in your life. What 
That's not what they're grading. What they're grading is. Do you understand do the concept? You, yeah. Do you comply with what I've taught you? Right. See, so, so, okay. But what the Bible teaches is that it's such a bigger and more important principle. And that is, is that more than grades, more than a paycheck, more than anything else, you have been given the capacity to evaluate yourself, which is the most freeing and growing and responsible thing that you will ever do. So the Bible, I call this the principle of fruit bearing or bearing fruit. And that is that the, cause I can now do that with myself. Then I can now look at every idea, every value, every principle that I hold, and I can determine the efficacy of that principle based on the fruit that it bears. So this is really important because this has been a part of Christianity for 2000 years. This is why Christianity is the birthplace of science. Mm. A lot of people are shocked when I say that because they think that faith and science are diametrically opposed. And I said, no, that is a narrative that scientific materialists and atheists have tried to propagate over the last 150 years, but it's completely false. When you go back and you look at all the early scientists and the birth of the scientific revolution in Western civilization, 95% of every single person who was a leader or a forefather of modern science was a dedicated follower of Jesus Christ. And so they saw the pursuit of this because what they wanted to do is they say, well, this bears this fruit or this has this result. We want to know why. So it was an evaluative technique that said, let's just stick with the facts and the efficacy of any idea can be evaluated on the, um, on this principle. However, we live in a postmodern society and I know that people are like, oh, the pastor is always Talking about postmodernism, but saying this that is, buzzword, the, fill out your here, bingo card. Here's a perfect <laughs> example of why it's an issue because postmodernism dictates that all ideas are equally valid since no ideas are ultimately true. Okay. So in other words, it's you could believe whatever you want, you know. Um, it's kind of like they see ideas as jello. All right. You can make jello in any shape you want. You can make it in any color you want, but it always is jello and it tastes like jello. Right. That's it. And so they, they say that's basically what all idea and all truths are. Uh, the, the bottom line with that is postmodernism then says there are no better ideas. And I'm like, okay, well, what if your idea is that valid or not? See, you, you just said there are no valid ideas. So you're basically saying even my idea that no ideas are valid is invalid. So I start to see, it doesn't make really a lot of sense when you start talking that way. And so I'm like, and is there any way to know whether some ideas are better than other ideas? Do ideas contain elements or postulates or statements that you can evaluate? And can you objectively evaluate them? In other words, what is the fruit that they bear? And what's really strange is that we have a lot of people like journalists are extremely postmodern across the board. Mm. Um, uh, progressives, leftists are extremely postmodern. Marxists are extremely postmodernist. But what's really fascinating is even they don't live as postmodernists. You see, they invalidate their own principle on which they build their ideology by fighting for it. Cause they're saying my ideology is more valid than yours. Well, wait a second. You just said that 
no ideology is more valid than any other. So now you're advocating and fighting for your own. That doesn't make any sense. Right. And that's why I think a lot of that, what people look at that and see what they do is kind of crazy. You know, it's like, mm. why are you doing that? That doesn't make any sense to me. And so uh, in reality, what human beings do every single day is they make valuations because you're a free sovereign individual. You think for yourself and you know what your decisions are? They're value judgments. Do mm. I want a burrito for lunch or a turkey and avocado club? You know? Now you're just making me hungry faster. <laughs> so, because that's a value judgment, right? Well, you know, that, that Los Betos burrito tastes really good, you know? <laughs> but it sits in my stomach like a Forever. bomb. <laughs> and it's not good on my digestive system, you know? It's not healthy. So you're making a value judgment. Do I want to get up and go to work or do I want to call into those are value judgments. You always constantly saying I am making a value judgment on this idea or this decision in my life. And almost always 100% of the time, subconsciously, your decision is based on your past experience of the fruit that that decision made. Like I'm not going to buy the Los Betos burrito because of what it did to me, the fruit it bore in my stomach the last time <laughs> I ate it. Right. Right. So, so that's really a big deal. And, and we, we don't realize we do that, but we do it all the time. And so there is a way on which we do live every single day where we make value judgments on the basis of whether this idea is good or bad. Well, I mean, there's a lot of ideas, ideologies that sound good on paper, yes. let's say, but the fruit they bear is I mean, rotten, overwhelmingly rotten, <laughs> Overwhelmingly right? rotten and to the core. So yes. I want to kind of take some ideas that have been propagated over the last, you know, couple of decades of um, things that seemed like a good idea, and then we can kind of just discuss them a little bit. So, you know, I wasn't around at the start of this. Yes. You were probably, I would assume. But well, I was birthed in the 60s. You were birthed in the 60s. So yes. the idea of free love. Oh, yeah, free love. Yeah, that's a big idea. And on the surface, it's like, wow, love is the most powerful force in the universe, right? Mm -hmm. So wouldn't it be great if it was free? And then that became, well, in some ways it is. It can be freely given, but then that was translated by the hippies, which was really big. Uh, they spray painted it on everything. When I was a little kid, about there was about sexuality, okay? Right. And so you may not realize this. A lot of people are not aware that the most transformative thing that happened in American society in the last 100 years was the introduction of the pill because it was inexpensive. It's highly effective birth control for women. And so it was extremely transformative for women and then men in the end. This launched what was known as the free idea, free love ideology, because the notion was, is the number one fruit that sex outside of marriage or sex period produces is children, pregnancy. Right. And for women, that was the biggest risk. You know, if a guy and a gal hooked up uh, and there was no birth control, the, the consequence for the guy was obviously a lot less than the consequence for the woman if she got pregnant. Right. Um, unless he decided to, and back then they said, make an honest woman, woman out of her. So that was a big deal. And so because the pill came out, 
uh, it really transformed things. Mm. And I think what's really fascinating is let's look then at the consequences of this transformative technology. Because what people found is that there is no such thing as free love. There's always a entanglement or a price that is paid simply because you removed the possibility of pregnancy that the fruit that that activity bore doesn't mean that there was all these other fruits that are growing on that tree as well. So what happened is the consequences of free love turned out to bear some really negative, serious fruit, a massive rise in sexually transmitted diseases, which really caused a lot of problem, health problems for people, mm-hmm. uh, for, particularly for women, uh, up until they came up with the HPV's vaccine. And that was, it would create uh, in uterine cancers, and all of these other types of things were directly linked to the HPV virus that they may have contracted during this period of time. So there was all these biological health issues that suddenly they realized were extremely pronounced, but that doesn't even talk about the emotional uh, fruit that it bore in all of the wreckage that it created in people's lives across the board. So the, the, the ideology is, well, free love. You can, you know, have sex with whoever you want without any impact on you turns out to be utterly and completely false. And so that's, and we evaluate that today, not, I mean, I I look at it, well, the Bible teach has taught this and it hasn't changed, but when the pill came out, a lot of people said, well, see, this shows how the Bible's outdated and mm-hmm. doesn't apply anymore. And now we've come back through the actual fruit that this ideology bore, right, is extremely negative. Mm-hmm. And so we realized, well, oh, I guess the Bible was more right than we ever knew. So my point being in that is that you can make a religious argument uh, in regards to free love, or you can just make a scientific argument against the notion of free love based on psychological research and also medical history of people who practice and live in that way. Right. Well, let's, let's take another um, look at a different aspect of, of this idea, which is, so maybe you're not out sleeping with everybody. Okay. Okay. But instead you're like, I'm dating someone but you know, before we get married, we want to make sure we're sexually compatible. So okay. we're going to sleep together before marriage because we got to make sure that aspect of our relationship is going to work. Yeah, and on the surface, I think this is really common. I mean, what a lot of people will share with me is that uh, we got to make sure we're sexually compatible because a lot of couples break up, you know, because of sexual incompatibility. And uh, and I think that there's some truth to that. You know, there's some veracity to that. But uh, the difficulty or the problem that people who live together before they get married have no idea how your sexual temperature and your sex drive changes dramatically, even over the course of a four to five year period of time. Right. So, so the notion that you're discovering some type of sexual com- compatibility that's going to transcend 10 years of marriage is absurd, right? Because the first thing is that if you're dating and then you decide to live together and then you get married, let's say you get married within a year or two of living together. That's like saying, well, we figured out we can communicate. Well, I guarantee in four years, 
you're going to be communicating totally different because people change, they grow. And so, but what's really fascinating is, is that the idea is debunked because actual research shows that the divorce rate for people who live together first, uh, before the marriage is almost twice that of those who wait. And it's also highest among people who've been married between four and seven years. So in other words, what the research shows is that the stats show is that if you live together before you got married, the chances of you getting divorced between the fourth and the seventh year doubles. And in some cases triples Hmm. because, uh, uh, that, and that tripling is dependent upon your age. So if you start living together when you're like 18 or 19, like in college, then, and then you get married, the chances of you getting divorced are tripled within that four or five to seven year period of time. And so that that's one thing that is really important. Also research is debunks it by saying that when you date somebody, the longer you wait to become intimate with that person that you're dating, the stronger the relationship is and the longer that it will last. There is a direct causal effect between those two things. So, the reason why I think is that when you really kind of, you know, peel it back a little bit, what you realize is that what you're dealing with is sexual expectations. And what research shows is that those who participate in sexual activity prior to marriage build certain sexual expectations that are impossible to carry out throughout the marriage. It's absolutely impossible. And so what happens is a phenomena that psychologists call uh, tachyphylaxis, and this has to do with neuroscience. And that is, is that what your brain does, okay, is it's the most powerful organ in your body. And what it does is it is, it's filtering all this data constantly to bring, you know, order out of chaos in the world. And so what, what it does is it also will alert you when the, when there's a data point that is out of the norm that your brain is set up, then it says that's an alarm. Mm. Right. And so, Oh, there's this part on my body that never hurts. And now it's extremely painful. And you look down, you know, and there's a candle burning you or you, uh, 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 a bee is stinging you or something like that. Right. So you're, it's a pain. It's like alert, alert. And so, uh, it also works in the other way too. And so what it does is it wants to normalize everything. It doesn't like shooting adrenaline through your system. Your body doesn't like that heightened, you know, well, and it's just bad for your body to live in a state like that yeah, constantly, constantly that hyped up, you know, kind of a thing. And that's why, um, you see like people who are addicted to meth, you look at their bodies very quickly because what meth does is it puts you in that state constantly mm. never stops. And so it just destroys the body extremely quickly. And so, um, and so now people say, well, what does that have to do with what we're talking about? Well, I'll tell you why it's because most people fall in love and they become sexually intimate with that person in the, initially the brain is like, wow, the bells go off. There's fireworks, you know, flowers smell better and all that kind of stuff. Well, what you have to realize is that your brain is wired to not want that over a long period of time. And so in tachyphylaxis, what it does is the brain starts to normalize that. And so that exciting chemistry that you had in the first uh, period of your relationship or your marriage, it wears off. 
And so now you have to make a concerted effort then to recreate it. You have to be aware of that and how to keep the home fires burning and keep it alive, which there's all these techniques and things that you can do to do that. They are extremely effective, tons of fun for married couples. However, if you live together before you experience that electricity, then you get married and then there comes a time when that doesn't happen anymore, it gets boring. And so instead of saying, oh, this is normal, right? What you do is you say, oh, we're not in love anymore because I don't hear the bells anymore, see? Mm. And that usually takes about 36 months. That is a standard time frame in which that, that's average. So some people it's shorter, some people it's longer. And guess what? Your first relationship takes a little longer. Your 10th or 11th, if you're sexually active with all of them, it gets shorter and shorter and shorter. And that should say something to people, right? So I made this decision and the fruit it bears is I have a lack of intimacy. I have a lack of uh, commitment. I have a lack of capacity to bond to another human being. I have a lack of, so uh, if I can quote Craig Rochelle, when it comes to should I live together first so I can practice being married and practice sexual chemistry, he says in response to that, actually what you're doing is you're practicing divorce. Mm. So I think that's a perfect example of how you can take the fruit of that ideology, evaluate it and go, wow, that's not the best choice. Well, I have a couple more ideas I want to, I want to cruise through before we get to the end of our time together today. Um, Big one that's kind of popping up, especially people my age right now, um, things that are kind of being like, well, why don't we look at this is the idea that um, socialism mm-hmm. or communism is more fair to human beings. It's yeah. it's better for them um, than democracy or capitalism or whatever. Insert alternative option. Well, in our last in our last Thursday edition, so that'd be podcast one. I don't know. It's an even number yes. on Thursday. We showed a video from Kami Mommy. Remember Kami yes. Mommy and Kami Mommy was basically saying, I would rather live in a society where everybody had all the same needs met uh, than live in a society where I could get rich and somebody else was, you know, uh, stuck in poverty kind Mm -hmm. of a thing. And so that's what she's saying. She's making a fairness argument at its core. She's saying, I would rather live with less, but more fair. And so that's really popular. Because what that does is fairness solves poverty, right? So the idea that you solve poverty by uh, making everyone equal, and the way you do that is you're going to take something from this group of people and you're going to give it to that group of people, okay, is really a bad idea. Because what it is saying is that it's saying, well, in order to be fair and help everybody, I'm going to use envy because the only way that you can make that determination objectively is by using envy. And that is, well, these people have more than I, so I can take from them. But the problem with envy is that it's an impossible line to draw. You know, if everybody lived under pure um, uh, envy, right? There's all these people that are going to come up to Jesse and go, Jesse, you have more than me. So I'm taking from you. And you're like, 
I don't have a lot, right. you know, um, I'm young, I'm just starting out, blah, blah, blah. And then people at your stage are going to go to people in the next stage up and say, well, you guys have more than us. And they're like, well, that's cause we're, you know, eight years older and we've worked a little longer and saved a little longer. That doesn't matter. That's irrelevant. It has to be equal. And this is what I find fascinating is that the people who love socialism the most are always young people. Mm. They love it. Now you'll find some old people like, you know, Bernie, you know, feel the burn Bernie, you know, who's kind of, who's gotten rich off of socialism, which I don't quite understand how confusing thought process, but yes, but he's done that. And, you know, he used to say, we need to make millionaires pay their fair share. Well, since he's a millionaire, millionaire now, he has changed it to billionaires. See, he's changed what he says. So I know that's salty and rude, but that's how I'm wired. Um, (laughs) so what happens is it's like, okay, People have different stages of wealth throughout their life, right? And Mm -hmm. the best thing to do in the world, if you want to become a wealthy person, is simply get married, stay married, okay? Because the number one cause of poverty in middle age is divorce. Mm. It knocks you down to the poverty category pretty quick. Is get married, stay married, and spend less than you make. It's not a complicated it's thought process, not but complicated. a lot of people really struggle with that. <laughs> yeah. And so you have younger people though, that are in love with it. And the issue is this, is that, um, what we have to do is say, okay, well, where has that ideology been imposed and did it solve poverty, poverty, did fairness solve poverty? Because that's what we want to do. We want to mm. solve poverty. And so you look at it and you go, okay, in every place where these ideologies were instituted, the fruit that they bore was it didn't solve poverty, it created it. Mm. It created it. So I've said this on the Salty Pastor before, is that right now I am an unequivocal committed to a, as a free market economic person. And the reason why I am is because the Bible says to me that as a pastor, I need to be concerned with the poor. And I need, you know, pure religion is helping the poor. And the thing that has lifted more people out of poverty in the world today is free market economics. Mm. That, that has done it more. As a matter of fact, the poverty rate outside of America and third world countries has been cut in half in the last 30 years. Mm. I mean, that is the most dramatic thing in the world. And you know why? Free market economic principles. They got rid of all of these controls. They go in, they do microeconomic stuff and microeconomic based on fair market where people enter into re- uh, economic relationships of their own free will. It's not forced. The abolition of slavery and guess what? <laughs> takes off. So one of the things that I really want to do is I want to make sure that I am 100% committed to whatever solves pro- poverty the most effective way. And so that's why I think that on the surface, that ideology that communism and socialism is good or more fair is ridiculous. If you want even more research and data, just look at the body count. You know, I mean, socialism and communism has resulted in the death of more innocent human beings than any other ideology in the history of the world. Mm. Well, we've only got a few minutes left, but uh, so I've got two ideas I want to I want you to pick between which one you would like to kind of wrap up on. We could talk about education or we could talk about the idea of self-righteousness in either either float your boat. Okay. Uh, well, I think there's two, I mean, there's two of them. I think that the idea that government run educational systems are, 
um, the most effective way to educate the public. Okay. Right? Yes. And, and so the issue here isn't the value that everybody deserves access to an education. That mean, that's what public education means. That's what it was designed for. Was yeah. Initially say, provide hey, education we for want, those. Yeah, we want to provide education for everybody, which, by the way, was an ideology started in the Protestant Christian church in England. Right. Okay. And that was to get children out of poverty by teaching them to read and write. Hence Sunday school, right? Hence Sunday school. That's what the original Sunday school was in England. I can't think of the guy's name off the top of my head that started it, but that's where it came. Um, what happened is we uh, have taken that. And then what we have done is we've increased government control over it and centralized that control. And then various organizations have grown up to influence and control it. And none of these organizations have at their center children first. Okay. So you look at all of the groups that control our educational system right now, and none of them have at, they, they'll say it, but in reality, their incentive... It's written on their website somewhere. Yeah, it's written on their website when you go there, but it is not. Because they constantly violate what's best for the kids every single day. We see this in curriculum choices and the data that proves it. We see it in the proficiency rates that are just dropping over and over and over again. And we especially saw it when they shut down the schools and harmed our kids during covid because of the control that the teachers union exercise over our educational system. And so what's happening in this regard is I don't think that a government run and controlled educational system is in any way serving the public interest because it doesn't put children first. And then the last one you asked was about self-righteousness. And I, I think that that is really interesting because self-righteous, I guess the, the, here's how I see that ideology coming up. Um, we've talked about this before when we, about conflation, mm -hmm. you know, when we conflate and you say, you know, cause what deconstructionists do is they say, well, there's a group of these people, right? And one of them said this. So they all believe so they that. All believe yeah. So, and I can now accuse all of them of that. And so in the place that this comes out all the time is, uh, people who identify in the LGBTQ plus, uh, community that they're building, right? And we actually have people who identify as gay, uh, some men, we have some ladies, they identify as lesbians. And we even, you know, uh, have uh, people who are go dealing with transgender issues mm -hmm. in their life that are actively participating in the life of our church. Uh, we have a lot of people who go to our church have family members that mm -hmm. identify in the LGBTQ plus arena. And so it's not like we don't have any uh, connection or activity or conversation. We're not isolated. From We're not it. isolated from this. And what I think is really interesting is that the most common question as the lead pastor that I hear, and it, and it's sometimes it's a question, sometimes it's a criticism is that, uh, their family member will, won't come to church, uh, because Christians are really judgmental and they'll say things like, well, you know, this person had a bad experience with another Christian or they saw something on TV. And so then they conflate and say, I'm not going there because it's not safe. Cause there's, I'm going to run into people like that there. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, uh, I'm like, well, I'm not so sure that's really the greatest evaluative technique. Cause you're going to run into that 
anywhere. Right. But it's been my experience, and I know it's anecdotal, but I've been doing this for almost 35 years, is that the vast majority of evangelical and Protestant churches all have people who identify in the LGBTQ plus uh, community in their churches and they're active. And they say, well, my church accepts me, but every other church out there would judge me. And there was even a research study done that says that between 50 and 60% of all uh, people in that community won't go to church because they feel judged. And then they did a follow-up question and say, have you ever had a negative experience with a Christian where you felt judged? And only 30% said yes. So it's just this stigma that's even it's a stigma. Ro- arisen throughout the community. Yeah. And so what happens is then I respond um, with this. I go, well, uh, you have a good point is what I'll say. And I'll say that, you know, people I'm sure have acted in a judgmental or a harmful way to you. And that's not what I would call biblical Christianity. You know, they may say, well, what you're doing isn't, you know, finding your identity and your sexual orientation is not going to open your life to God because God says, I'm the one who gives you value in your identity. And so we can't pick anything. And so anything we pick, whether it's sexual orientation or your, your political affiliation or your materialism or your career or the Bible uses one word for all this kind of stuff. It's called idolatry Mm. and they throw, you know, it throws everything in there. So it doesn't matter what it is. It has the same result. You're trying to find your identity in something other than Jesus. And so that's the problem with that. And I go, so I understand that. However, I would also like to point out that gay and lesbian activists are forcing people out of business simply because they won't bake them a cake or cut their flowers for them in a flower arrangement. And I said, so that means you support that too, right? You know, and I'll say, um, guess what? I know that right now there are uh, transgender activists that are interjecting gender and queer identity propaganda to kindergartners in California and other states like Florida, where they actually had to pass a law just to say, hey, you just can't do that. You know, you just you can't interject that to kindergartners. It's happening in Minnesota right now. It's happening in uh, Minneapolis. The school district is interjecting it to kindergartners. We're talking six and seven year old kids mm. about this stuff. And so you obviously support that as well. And they're like, no, I don't support that. That's ridiculous. I don't think I don't support that at all. And I think it's wrong. I go, oh, but you're conflating all these Christians with a bad experience you had in judging the church. And now you're saying that it doesn't apply to you and the community that you say you're a part of. And this is where I respond and say, you know, there's a principle in the Bible. that says, whatever standard of judgment you use is the standard you will be judged by. I'm judging you as an individual and your walk with God. What you're doing is you're judging me as in a group. Therefore you're going to be judged by God as a group. Mm. So you better work on that and figure it out because that, you know, you're not hurting me, right? You're hurting yourself. Right. So you better figure that out if that's one of the issues you're dealing with in your life. Well, I think that's some great, um, practical ideas broken down to their fruit. Like we've been talking about seeing where that fruit grows to in its end point after some of these ideas that seem good in theory, but then in practice are maybe not as good as they're proposed to be. Correct. So I appreciate you sharing those, kind of talking about those with us today, Pastor. Make sure you guys tune in on Sunday. We're going to have more on this idea and of fruit bearing and the things that come from fruit bearing when your cup's overflowing and some ideas that 
don't produce the greatest fruit. So thank you guys so much for joining us here on the Salty Pastor, and we'll see you next week. Blessings.